and welcome to episode 10 of the Rehumanized podcast. This is Herb Garrity. I'd like to welcome John Whitehead back to the Rehumanized podcast. John is the president of the Consistent Life Network, a network of organizations and individuals committed to the protection of life, which they believe is threatened in today's world by war, abortion, poverty, racism, the death penalty, and euthanasia. Rehumanized International is, of course, a member organization and frequent collaborator of the Consistent Life Network. I am very excited to welcome John back. Uh, John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Herb. It's good to be back. Great. So this is my first recording during the the coronavirus uh, pandemic. (laughs) So I'm hoping everything sounds good to the listeners. Um, We are trying our best to make sure that's the case. so I'm sure many followers, <laughs> I'm sure many followers of Rehumanize know that we are approaching the 75th anniversary of the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. Today, John is joining us to discuss the anniversary and dive a little deeper into some of the causes and perhaps unintended consequences of this horrific act of violence. Thank you, Herb. Everyone knows about the atomic bombings. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Everybody knows that they occurred. Everybody knows that there is a great deal of moral debate around them. What I think is not as well appreciated is the larger context in which the nuclear bombings of these two Japanese cities took place. I think if you look at the larger U.S.-Japanese war and also the post-war situation, the American occupation of Japan, you can see that this is a topic that embraces uh, an array of life issues, Uh, certainly war, the threat of nuclear weapons, of course, uh, but also racism, because racism was a pervasive part of the war between the United States and Japan, and also abortion, because one of the legacies of the war between the United States and Japan was the legalization of abortion in Japan. So I think this larger history shows us many ways in which different threats to life that ought to concern consistent life ethic activists combined in the, the war in the Pacific. Yeah, I think, I think you've raised uh, several interesting points. Um, I want to start off discussing the racism that was involved, really the entire Second World War, the U.S. involvement, um, in regards to, you know, our, our treatment and our thinking surrounding um, the, the citizens of Japan um, and, of course, how we treated Japanese citizens of the United States at the time, um, how exactly uh, this sort of pervasive thinking led to some of the atrocities um, that, that we committed in the Second World War. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, the Before Pearl Harbor, before... Uh, 1941, Japan and the United States had never fought a full-scale war, but pre-existing negative attitudes did exist uh, on both sides. Uh, And certainly Japanese racism during the Second World War is a whole topic in and of itself that we could talk about. But since 
we're Americans. Most of our listeners are probably Americans. And of course, the United States ultimately won the Second World War. Uh, tonight, we want to focus on the American side of this. Yeah, absolutely. And even prior to the war, there were... Even prior to the start of the war, there were anti-Japanese races in the United States. Before Pearl Harbor, uh, certain states prohibited Japanese Americans from owning land. Uh, and of course, all of this existed within the larger context of American racism towards Asians of all heritages and, of course, uh, against all non-white peoples. So this was sort of the, the fertile ground uh, for racism that when uh, the Empire of Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor uh, turned into just profound, uh, virulent anti-Japanese hatred uh, in a degree to which it's, I think, hard to appreciate or even imagine today. Uh, We're, of course, very much aware of American racism. Reflections on it are uh, something we're very much uh, concerned with today in 2020, but the sheer ferocity uh, of of anti-Japanese sentiment during the Second World War is striking, and I think too little appreciated. Writing a few decades after the end of the Second World War, the historian Alan Nevins wrote, quote, probably in all our history, no foe has been so detested as were the Japanese. Uh, and he added the unintentionally telling comment, emotions forgotten since our most savage Indian wars were awakened by the ferocities of Japanese commanders. And indeed, demonization of the Japanese was uh, pervasive during the war years. It extended from official statements made by policymakers, made by leaders, to statements made by members of the military, to popular culture, uh, what magazines and the media said, or songs said, the Japanese were portrayed as savages, as being uncivilized, as being somehow backward. That was common. Uh, among some anthropologists, otherwise very educated people, uh, there was a tendency to view the Japanese as somehow collectively neurotic or crazy. Uh, to identify Japanese culture as having some kind of built-in pathology. And anthropologists would often employ rather uh, uh, strange Freudian analysis uh, in trying to analyze Japanese culture, uh, rooting Japanese aggression to uh, toilet training practices, for example. Uh, That was one theme of analysis. And then also there was a far cruder form, and it's a very familiar one in American history, which was to portray the Japanese as essentially non-human, as being beasts or animals of some kind, Uh, insects, uh, and in a very familiar racist trope, apes of some kind. There was a uh, edition, a 1944 edition of Leatherneck, which was the magazine of the U.S. Marine Corps, it featured a cartoon of an of an insect with buck teeth and slanted eyes, uh, and it was labeled the Lausius Japanicus. And uh, the description of this insect uh, was the rather prophetic uh, comment that before a complete cure may be effected, 
the origin of the plague, the breeding grounds around the Tokyo area, must be completely annihilated. Yeah, I think I think what you mentioned about sort of pervasive dehumanization of the Japanese people, um, when, when you think of that, it's sort of hard to to imagine that our policies and the actions taken by um, U.S. generals and um, Harry S. Truman and, Mm -hmm. you know, the the military at large at that time, um, it's hard to imagine that they weren't influenced by that sort of thinking. Um, You know, they they had to have been. That's how how dehumanization works. That's why dehumanization works. and that that quote that um, I have used when I talk about sort of dehumanization generally, as well as uh, within the Second World War, is um, by Harry S. Truman. I think it was, mm-hmm. it was either the day after or maybe day of. It was very soon after he dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, he said... When you have to deal with a beast, you have to treat him like a beast. It is most regrettable, but nevertheless true. Um, And I think that is just so indicative of how this sort of dehumanization leads to to violence very directly in that case. Um, It's used as a justification for violence often. I think that's an excellent point. A Truman quotation is extremely telling. Uh, I think very good. You uh, and there were other, uh, there were other top policymakers, other military commanders, who uh, went beyond just saying racist things about the Japanese to say very overtly uh, genocidal or extermination exterminationist uh, comments about the Japanese. There was a government official uh, who, in 1945, gave a speech in which he called for, uh, quote, the extermination of the Japanese in toto. Uh, He later clarified that that was just his personal opinion. He wasn't stating U.S. policy, supposedly. Uh, And uh, the uh, Admiral William Halsey, who was the commander of U.S. South Pacific Naval Forces and was notorious for being an uh, extremely blunt speaker, uh, he laid out his mission, as he saw it for U.S. forces, which was kill Japs, kill Japs, kill more Japs. And you can start down to the popular level, to ordinary soldiers, uh, Robert Leckick, who was a service in the Pacific, uh, later explained his attitudes by saying, We had been fed tales of these yellow thugs, subhumans, with teeth that resembled fangs. If 100,000 Japs were killed, so much the better. 200,000? Even better. And uh, in December of 1944, a public opinion poll taken in the United States found that 13% of respondents favored policy, post-war policy for the United States and Japan was kill all Japanese. So you have this incredibly toxic, uh, incredibly um, bloodthirsty kind of rhetoric, imagery, perceptions of uh, the other side. Now, I should say, the Second World War was a war. It would have been violent and brutal regardless. And certainly, it's easy to identify situations in the war where the uh, uh, 
the conduct of the war was quite brutal, even in the absence of this kind of pervasive uh, talk. Uh, but as you say, I think I think one can recognize the inherently nature of war, but this kind of dehumanization would have had an influence, an impact on the United States uh, as it conducted the war. Uh, and uh, we're, of course, going to talk about the atomic bombings, but I can give uh, two examples, two pretty clear examples of how the, the United States' uh, war against Japan differed from, even apart from the atomic bombings, differed from uh, the war, for example, against Nazi Germany. And it's worth noting, there was not this kind of dehumanization of, of the German people. Uh, Hitler was portrayed as evil, the Nazis were portrayed as evil, but there was not this kind of hatred directed against the German people as a whole, uh, in the same way that there was towards the Japanese people as a whole. And uh, as you mentioned at the very start of the, our talk, uh, one of the most obvious differences on the level of policy was the treatment of American citizens of Japanese heritage, uh, which was during the war, of course, over 100,000 Americans of Japanese descent were placed in concentration camps on suspicion of loyalty to the United States, which some imprisonment, some harassment of German Americans, but nothing on that scene. And General John DeWitt, who was the official in charge of the imprisonment of Japanese Americans, I think, expressed the attitude underlying that policy when he said, uh, in regards to the Japanese-American citizenship, he just said, a Jap's a Jap. You can't change him by giving him a piece of something uh, very racialized. The other policy, or I shouldn't say policy, the other practice during the Second World War in the Pacific that set it apart from the war in Europe is uh, American soldiers fighting the Japanese would take what were known euphemistically as battlefield trophies. Are you familiar with what that means? Yeah. Yeah. There is, uh, just for any listeners who are not aware, what that would mean is that they would take, after a battle, they would take uh, ears, teeth, uh, sometimes heads of the killed Japanese as essentially trophies of their um, And there's an infamous photograph that appeared in Life magazine of a rather attractive American woman looking at a gift, say, serving in the Pacific Center, the skull of a Japanese. Uh, and this would be, I mean, think of German, European, white, troops this way, or it would be, it certainly was highly unusual for anything like that to happen. So even before the, we get to the bombings of Japan, there was this kind of difference in the treatment of the enemy, racially based treatment of the enemy. Absolutely. Uh, now I want to, I want to get into a little bit more, more specifics about the the nuclear bombings themselves um, of course i think some of the the quotes that you brought up both from the 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 generals and the sort of troops on the ground um people mm -hmm. sort of reiterated this point of um you know whether it's a hundred thousand or it's it's two hundred thousand um 
seeing the the victims of this violence as um, as numbers or as um, statistics. And I think that you know that that was clearly the case as it was happening. Um, but I also think that that can tend to be the case today when we think of um, the the history related to these events, when we think of them as history, um, when when we think of the of the nuclear bombs and we think of sort of a mushroom cloud, um, I think mm-hmm. that that can often be its own sort of form of dehumanization um, because we we think of the you know the tens of thousands of people who died as you know a group of tens of thousands of people died and not the individuals that they were um, right. so I want to I want to talk a little bit about sort of the way that history works that way um, and how that just always makes me uncomfortable um, sure. and sort of dive deeper into these lives or you know obviously we can't we can't discuss every single person who who perished or whose life was irrevocably changed. Um, but I think we can bring attention to to some of them. Sure. No, absolutely. I, I think that, yes, it's very easy to get lost in, in numbers or, or numbers, uh, as someone once said, numbers don't bleed. Uh, and I think we do need to put a little bit of a human, a little bit of a human face on uh, the suffering involved. Before we do that, I do want to sense the listeners who might not be familiar with it of some of the zero in on the, the, the human scale, which is because, again, context is everything. The, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in isolation, they were the culmination of uh, of the Japanese home islands by the United States that began in March of 1945 and continued all the way to August, the atomic bombings. Uh, and it began in, on March 9th, the night of March 9th, in the firebombing of Tokyo, which in and of itself was a, a colossal atrocity. Uh, something on the order of 100,000 people were killed in that. And it continued over the course of the spring, summer of 1945, with cities such as Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, Yokohama, and ultimately, 66 Japanese cities being bombed, culminating in the atomic bombings. Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th. At the time, it was home to around 300,000 people, most of them civilians, although there were some military. And I would want to share in the spirit, having talked about those numbers, bring it down to the human level by sharing just a few of the memories. One of them was a doctor, Dr. Michihiko Hachi, uh, from the, his first glimpse of the atomic bombs was rather lyrical. Uh, he was at home that morning. He remembered it as being, quote, still warm and beautiful. Uh, he was looking at it as garden. And he recalled that, quote, suddenly a strong flash of light startled me. And then another, so well does one recall little things that I remember vividly how a stone lantern in the garden became brilliantly lit. Garden shadows disappeared. The view where a moment before all had been so bright and sunny was now dark and hazy. That's how it began. Goro Kiyoshi, looking from, uh, at the scene from Mount Futaba, which overlooks Hiroshima, 
recalled, quote, Standing on the hill, I could see the shrine at its foot engulfed in flames, and Shukan Garden burning between two branches of the Ota River. The fire extended to the Hiroshima castle. Above the city was a mushroom cloud from the atomic bomb. In the city, a five-year-old girl recalled that, quote, black smoke billowing up. I had a terribly lonely feeling that everybody else in the world was dead and only we were still alive. Yasko Yamagata remembers the morning after the bombing, quote, I started from school toward the ruins of my house in Nomoricho. I passed by Hijiyama. There were few people to be seen in the scorched field. I saw for the first time a pile of burned bodies in a water tank by the entrance to the broadcasting station. Then I was suddenly frightened by a terrible sight on the street. There was a charred body of a woman standing frozen in a running posture with one leg lifted and her baby tightly clutched in her arms. Who on earth could she be? These are just a few of the stories of people who lived through the bombing. Nagasaki, which was bombed on August 9th, gives similar stories. Estimates of how many people were killed in the atomic bombings vary widely. It depends on your time frame, if you include people who died subsequently because of radiation poisoning or other after effects of the bomb. Estimates can vary of the combined atomic bombings can vary anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000. But there's no question many, many precious individual human lives were snuffed out. And the writer Richard Frank, who looked at the entire American bombing campaign from the Tokyo bombing in March all the way through the atomic bombings in August, estimated the total fatalities from the American bombing campaign to be in the range of 400,000 people killed. But that in comparison in this year, 2020, consider that today the COVID-19 virus is, according to the CDC, 137, 864. That's in a similar time frame from about March to the summertime. So the American bombing campaign of Japan killed something on the order of four times Americans who have died this year from COVID. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's just so dark to think about yeah. and how it's still sort of, you know, affecting people. It, it wasn't a, a, a one-time thing. Um, right. the, the radiation still has effects. Um, and as as we're about to get into, um, the, the sort of effects on policy that um, within Japan that these bombings had. Right. Uh, yes, I think for many people, even people who are aware of the, the cost Second World War, uh, for many people, the story ends when Japan surrendered after the atomic bombings. Uh, and certainly the American-Japanese relationship changed. There was no longer this kind of pervasive dehumanization of the Japanese. Or the United States adopted a more paternalistic attitude towards this uh, post-war occupation during the period when Japan was reconstituting its government. But what is less well known is the, the, the darker side of all that. and. Uh, to get into that, we need to talk about uh, 
Prior to the end of the Civil War, there was definitely concern about abortion as the taking of a human life. And also, I think, concerns about that the policymakers wanted to grow the wanted the population to increase. There was very much a pro-natalist spirit. So abortion was legal. Similarly, forced sterilization, which was very common in many countries in the world in the early 20th century, including in the United States, was not legal in Japan. Uh, or there was an attempt to make it legal around 1940, but there was it had very little practical effect. Uh, with the result that during the war years, uh, the number of reported abortions in Japan actually went down. So there was very much a spirit of to encourage births and people to have children. But the end of the war changed all that. Japan had been devastated. People were killed. A fifth of Japanese housing and destroyed, which left millions homeless. And this created a lot of anxiety among post-war Japanese policymakers about how they were going to manage this population in what was a economically devastated, defeated country. And shortly after the end of the war, the notion of using abortion to control Japan's population was raised. Uh, members of the, the Japanese parliament, the Diet, introduced a bill in 1947 to allow abortion. One of the uh, diet mem members of the diet, Kato Shizue, said, I believe that the voices of today's women are saying, we want to have our beloved children a little in a little while once the problems of housing, fuel, and food have eased up. The bill didn't pass that year in 1947, but the following year it was reintroduced by uh, Dr. Uh, Yasuburu Taniguchi, who was, uh, in addition to being a parliamentarian, he was an OBGYN. And he introduced what became known as the Eugenic Protection Bill, whose stated purpose was, quote, to prevent the birth of eugenically inferior offspring and to protect maternal health and life. And it allowed for abortion under certain conditions uh, in the case of rape, pregnancy from rape, or if the mother uh, or the, the father had some kind of mental or physical illness. The bill also allowed for sterilization performed by a physician who wanted to, quote, prevent hereditary transmission of disease. And the following year, because of growing concerns about Japan's economy, uh, it was amended to allow for abortion uh, for, quote, physical or economic reasons. And thus, it was out of the post-war chaos and devastation in Japan and also eugenic, uh, ableist uh, beliefs of the time that abortion came to be legalized in Japan after the war. Yeah, I just I find this this connection fascinating uh, and and tragic. Sure. Uh, John, what do you right. what do you know of uh, the United States involvement with this um this sort of policy evolution in regards to abortion in Japan, because I know that, you know, we, we were somewhat hands off, but then somewhat hands on when it came to um, the, the reconstruction after the war. Um, what do you know of um, sort of Western involvement with this, this evolution in policy? Right. Well, that is the question. Did we're not supposedly not trying to shape Japanese law or impose uh, the United States view of what post-war Japan should be like. Uh, 
there may have been subtler forms of pressure put on the Japanese. Uh, General Crawford Sams, who was head of the occupying authorities, public health and welfare section, he might have urged Dr. Taniguchi to introduce the eugenic protection law. In January of 1949, uh, Dr. Warren Thompson, who was a demographer advising the American occupation authorities, he warned, and these comments were widely reported in the Japanese press, that the, the Japanese had to curb their population growth uh, to avoid the United States cutting off aid uh, or to avoid communism from arising in, in Japan. There's also, it's also entirely possible that the United States occupation contributed to the eugenic protection for a different reason, which is that hundreds of thousands of American troops stationed in Japan, which led to, among other things, uh, widespread sexual relationships with Japanese women, uh, many of which I'm sure were not consensual. The pressure, the concern or anxiety about dealing with pregnancies that might be perceived as shameful, that created some of the pressure and some of the demand for abortion in Japan. Uh, I'll also mention one uh, comment, I think it was rather bitterly ironic, that there was some reservations within the United States or among the American authorities about the eugenic protection laws, legalization of forced sterilization. And uh, one researcher uh, who was concerned about this uh, argued that, it just, it, that the provision for forced sterilization was, quote, evidence of the profound hold that tribal racism still exerts over the Japanese people. So if we look ahead, that was the post-war situation. Those were the post-war laws. I will note that uh, we should look at the longer-term effects of, of these policies. One reason the United States might not have intervened of the law legalizing abortion was they thought it wouldn't have much of an effect. Uh, one occupation document said that as modern contraceptive knowledge is disseminated, it is believed provisions for abortion will become of little consequence as they will fall into disuse. Uh, and we know we know how wrong that is. And again, to put the numbers in perspective, which you can remember that even with the low official statistics, a single year of abortions killed more than twice as many Japanese as the American wartime bombing campaign. Japanese birth rates dropped. Uh, there were also forced sterilizations that I mentioned Perhaps about uh, almost 17,000 people were forcibly sterilized uh, on various grounds. Uh, just to mention one case, there was a 16-year-old, she was a housekeeper, who was suspected of having a mental disability of some kind. And in 1963, she was sterilized, not only without her consent, but even without her knowledge of what the operation was. And she discovered what had happened. She said that I went to Tokyo to see if I could get the operation reversed, but I was told it wouldn't be possible. They stole my life away. This has been the legacy of the eugenic protection law and more broadly the legacy of the war within Japan. Something that um, I think I read in an article that you wrote a couple of years ago um, is <laughs> that eugenic protection law um, is is a form of it is still um, sort of in effect, but in 1999 it was revised as the maternal protection law, 
which I just find a very right. sort of sort of telling um, sort of telling about um, how these sort of arguments for abortion legalization have evolved while um, while the thinking of it really has not because you know um, while things <laughs> like forced sterilization have have become taboo, um, and eugenics, when you call it eugenics, has become, you know, taboo and horrible uh, in the mainstream. Eugenics, when you call it maternal protection, uh, less so. And I just, I find that sort of, you know, crosses cultures. Sure. Yeah. The 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 rationales that are acceptable uh, evolve, even though the behavior uh, does not necessarily. Uh, to I mean, and to... To, to give a certain amount of, of credit where credit is due, the, the revision in the law was partly the result. Of, it did have one very clear positive benefit, which was the repeal of the forced sterilization procedures. And it was uh, Japanese disability rights activists lobbying for that change, speaking out against that change, that were able to repeal that aspect of the law. Uh, it's it's terrible. It took them to the 1990s to do it, uh, but it is is good that it was uh, changed within Buddhist practice. There is uh, through abortion or I believe through miscarriage, other uh, known as Mizuko, or which I think means unseen child or water child. And there's a, a spirit, a deity known as Jizo, who is regarded as the guardian of the souls of aborted children. And shrines to Jizo have sprung up in the post-war years, uh, and sometimes have grown quite rapidly. But uh, it's tragic because it reflects this sense of loss and the ways in which people will uh, essentially care for a child they didn't really have. Uh, people will put out figurines of children dressed like newborns, uh, giving them bibs or booties, uh, and place them at these shrines. Uh, and uh, there have been some heartbreaking uh, stories. One woman, a middle-aged uh, woman who had been going to these shrines for a decade uh, to mourn her, told a reporter, I pray for its spirit to safely enter the other world, which it can't do easily because it died for my own negligence, my mistakes. And I think the most powerful of these comments was simply a note that was left at a Buddhist temple in Japan, mother to her child. Tsubacha, I'm sorry, I would have loved to put my arms around you even once. Please go to heaven, your mother. The irony for me, though, is that as tragic as these kinds of notes, these as these mourning rituals are, it shows an awareness of some degree of responsibility and regret on the part of the people involved. And sadly, I think that is what is so much lacking in in this country, certainly, when you look back at all these events, when you look back at the legalization of abortion in Japan that happened under the United States occupation and possibly with subtle encouragement from the United States, when you look at the atomic bombings, the firebomb, you look at the racism, uh, the full reckoning with uh, all these forms of evil, 
all forms of dehumanization is, uh, has yet to occur in this country, sadly. Absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I even have anything to add. I think, yeah, we're we're still waiting for that. We're still, I think, often even among, you know, the the pro life circles that we tend to run in, there's this desire to to justify um, our mm-hmm. actions historically. Um, and, you know, not sure. not our actions, because, you know, we weren't, you and I, we weren't alive <laughs> during this, sure, um, sure. but but our country's actions. But I think I think that's telling that, you know, we there's this collective desire to to both forgive and forget um, and mm. to justify these actions. And I think that, sure. you know, it's it, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that we're not going to repeat these these types of atrocities or that we're going to be able to to move past that kind of thinking if we right. can't reckon with history. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. I think that I think that reckoning with these kinds of issues would uh what would have many uh positive consequences, but if nothing else if it if it causes us to see how what is sometimes remembered as the good war, World War II, uh, if we can remember how uh, how profoundly it was marked by atrocities, uh, if we can uh, remember how uh, extreme virulent racism took hold, and yeah, also how, how the legacy of war which devastates communities can make itself felt in future generation. Uh, all these are lessons worth learning. Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree. And I think that that, that is a, a good note to end on. Um, do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? No, I just wanted to thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this. And I think uh, this topic touches on so many issues. I hope it gives all of us some renewed uh, motivation to uh, to work against uh, against these kinds of evils. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, John. Is Does Consistent Life have anything coming up um, that our listeners should look out for? <laughs> uh, we don't have anything major planned at the moment. As with so many things, uh, the pandemic has put a crimp on much of our event planning, uh, although not rehumanizing. Uh, we are, however, uh, very much present online. You can Find our blog, uh, our weekly e-newsletter where we keep up with events and uh, life issue related activities. And you can find us at www.consistentlifenetwork.org. And yes, please get in touch with us if you're interested. Well, thank you so much, John. Thank you, Herb. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out our website at rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.